0: There's a set of people who uh, deny that the Holocaust happened, right? I find that deeply offensive, Mm -hmm. but uh, I I don't believe that our platform should take that down because I think that there are things that different people get wrong, um, either I don't think that they're intentionally getting it wrong, but I think but that in they. In case of a um, they might be. But go um, ahead. It's it's hard to yeah. impugn intent.
1: Adolf Hitler was not the demon that the modern propaganda made him out to be. He was a very decent man and a very peaceful man. How many books, pamphlets, videos do you send out a year? Millions. Millions. I kind of so the seats and other people then build on those ideas.
0: Despite admitting he was once a member of the American Nazi party and remains a denier of the Holocaust, Jones
2: got nearly 58,000 votes in 2018.
0: Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! It's pixels and words. And a swastika is just an image. But it's not just an image, man. Mm -hmm. I I think you know that. I'm positive you know that
2: troubling to see this existing in 2020. Nearly 6 million people died in the Holocaust. This episode started as a piece on historical denialism. One of the most common types of historical denialism is Holocaust denial. But while I was researching this, I came across something else. The whole more. A genocide that took nearly 4 million people. And I want to know. Why I have never heard of it. This is The Pursuit. I'm test Terrible. I think I'm going to start by just asking you, what is the Holodomor?
3: The Holodomor is the word that comes from two Ukrainian words. This is Valentina Kurilovi.
2: She is the director of the Holinomor Research and Education Consortium in Canada. Her parents are from the Ukraine.
3: One is holod, which means starvation or famine. And from the second part, morete, from the verb morete, which means to cause a torturous death. So, basically, it's what we consider in the Ukrainian community a portion of the Ukrainian genocide. Death inflicted by a torturous way through the process of starvation, a man-made famine that occurred in 1932-1933. In 1928, Stalin brought in the first five-year plan to reorganize the uh, economy of the country and to basically wipe out all private ownership of anything. And for the Ukrainian farmers, who made up 80, about 85% of the population of Ukraine, there were about 5 million private farms throughout Ukraine that were doing very well in the 1920s. They had more grain that they knew what to, to do with. Of course, under the communist system, private property is a taboo. And they also needed money. And there was nothing that the Soviets could sell to the world in order to gain money. And as a result, they decided to take the cash crop, which is grain, from the Ukrainian farmers. And the easiest way was for them to get control of the land and control of the industry itself.
2: In 1932, the Ukraine was a thriving farming nation. At the time, Joseph Stalin was trying to take back control. He was attempting to collectivize all farms, bringing all agriculture under state control. But Ukrainians were resistant to communist policies. They didn't want to see their independent farms forced into a collectivist social system, where the Soviet Union would essentially own the fruit of their labor. So Stalin set out to silence the farmers. We came to know this as the Ukrainian Famine, or the
3: Holodomor. They took absolutely every bit of grain that they could find. They even went to the homes of the workers to see whether they had hoarded anything. They came with these steel rods and they looked for things, and then anybody who was caught with that was arrested, deported, or shot on the spot or sent to prison.
0: One could argue that the origins of the famine lie
2: in Stalin's collectivization program. This is Anne Applebaum. She is a journalist and historian and author of the book, The Red Famine.
0: This was a program that began in the end of 1929, 1930, to collectivize agriculture, meaning that the state occupied and grabbed, essentially uh, land, houses, farm machinery, sometimes horses, all kinds of farm implements and nationalized them and said right these are now your private farm is now a state farm and you are now working for a state institution you are not a private farmer working for yourself you know once you've stolen everybody's land then the mechanisms were in place to enable you to steal their food and all their possessions as well and so collectivization was the beginning of this cycle that winds up in mass famine again not only in ukraine but the numbers in Ukraine are higher and the evidence in Ukraine for a kind of targeted collections of food that were designed to kill people is much stronger and it seems partly it was because Stalin feared the the, the uprisings and the and the resistance to collectivization that he was seeing in Ukraine and he feared that it would lead to a wider wider resistance and even another civil war
2: there is some debate on whether the Holodomor was a genocide or simply just a famine caused by drought. So it's very important to understand that
0: the Ukrainian famine was not a natural famine. In other words, it was not caused by you know, drought. It was not caused by shortages. It was not caused by pests or, or vermin. It was, it was a deliberately organized famine. Teams of soldiers actually went from house to house in the Ukrainian countryside and they confiscated people's food. So they would take everything, not just wheat and grain, which were supposed to be collected for the benefit of the cities, but they also took beans and peas and vegetables of all kinds. Sometimes they took cows. There's some reports that they took things like dogs and cats. And they would often come more than once. So they would come to a village and they would come back the next day. And if they found that people still had food, they would take more. This was all done theoretically in the name of, you know, mandatory collections of food that were meant to be redistributed in other parts of the Soviet Union. But in practice, everybody who went through this and many of the people who were carrying out these collections understood that the point was to deprive the people on the ground of everything because so they would starve to death. Within three or four months after these collections began, you begin to have very high death rates in Ukraine, and these are deaths from starvation.
2: The world knows very little about Holodomor. There aren't a lot of accounts from those who survived this event. We will get into why that is later. But for now, this is Holodomor survivor Maria Bartink. When they started to expropriate us, they covered all our potatoes with white powder, both the large ones that my mother set aside for us and the small ones for our pigs. Then the men prodded the potatoes with rakes so that they would mix with the powder. They poisoned the potatoes. They wrecked everything. They took all the seeds my mother had saved for the next year. They took everything. I don't know why my mother did this, but before we were expropriated, she dug a big hole near our cellar, and in the fall, she hid 18 bags of potatoes in that hole. There used to be a measure called a pail, and four pails filled a bag. My mother lined the hole with rye sheaves and put 18 bags of potatoes in that hole. Then she knocked down a nearby tree to cover that hole. Nobody found that hole, even though they prodded the ground everywhere with steel rods. They prodded in the house and the floor to make sure there wasn't anything buried, but because the tree covered that hole, they couldn't find the potatoes buried there. And without those potatoes, neither my mother's family nor we would have survived. What we do know about the Holodomor is that the Soviet Union actively sought to destroy the Ukrainians' food and crop. In addition to destroying the food, the Soviet Union also restricted travel outside of Ukraine.
0: To prevent people from leaving Ukraine and to prevent them from traveling to other parts of the Soviet Union in search of food, there were also rules that were designed to prevent peasants from coming into the city. So, People would be blocked on the roads. They were prohibited from using the trains. And so you often had this phenomenon of hungry people gathering in train stations and begging from passengers, but not being allowed to board trains themselves. So part of what also ensured that a lot of people died was precisely this. People
2: were deprived of food, and then
0: they were not allowed to go anywhere else to look for it.
2: Starvation is a brutal way to die. It often leads to terrible desperation. When you are starving... You will look to any available substance for nutrients. This is Holodomor survivor Nadia Kachinko. It was against the law to leave the village and go to the city. They didn't let people out of the village. The famine was deliberately planned. This was a planned death. First, they broke the spirit of the peasant. They knew that if you took away from the peasant everything that grows in the ground, beets, potatoes, cucumbers, that it would be nearly impossible to survive. There was famine, and there was cannibalism. I am telling you the honest truth. In our village, our neighbor swelled from hunger, couldn't walk anymore, and he lay on a cot waiting for his death. His sister couldn't get any food because she was starving. But women somehow coped better than men. Men were more vulnerable to starvation. For some reason, women coped better. After our neighbor died, his sister cut the flesh off his thigh, cooked it, and soon after, she died. She didn't want to leave the house, and her cousin, who lived next door, went over and found two corpses. They found cooked meat in a pot and decided that the sister had died because she ate her brother's flesh. My mother used to order us not to stray far from home, because there were instances where the children were stolen and their flesh cooked. The famine was something terrible. One of the most shocking parts of this genocide is that we don't actually have an accurate count of how many people died. The death toll was actively covered up.
0: Doctors, for example, were were ordered when they described the cause of someone's death, they were not to put famine, they were they put some other cause. They would put heart attack or, or something else. And so we know for a fact that there were deaths that were massaged to appear to be have different causes. And we also know that they were literally covered up. People were buried in mass graves where there were no individual markings, so death rates weren't being kept track of. Um, That of course presents a problem for record keepers who, who want precise numbers. The best numbers that we have come from demographers who've looked at a range of population documents and from before the famine and from afterwards and who have done estimates based on demographic likelihoods of how many people died but we can't get exact numbers from the period. The only numbers that are actually based on archival research were put together by a team of Ukrainian demographers and they simply sought to establish reliable numbers of excess deaths meaning the number of people who died above an expected average and they also look at lost births or the number of births that did not occur by comparison to what would have been expected because of the famine. And they coalesced around two numbers, which is 3.9 million excess deaths and 0.6 million lost births. And so that brings the total number of missing Ukrainians to four and a half million. And that would include all the victims, whether they died by the roadside, in prison, in orphanages. And those numbers are
2: based on the number of people living in Ukraine before the famine and
0: afterwards.
2: I want to know how this is possible. How nearly 4 million people died and the world remains largely ignorant.
0: The Soviet Union never acknowledged that the famine happened. And the denial was so important and so intense that Stalin actually refused to allow the publication of a census that was conducted in 1937 because the census showed that there were fewer people in Ukraine than there should have been. And actually more than that, the census takers and the census department were arrested and many died. Uh, they were taken to camps and some were somewhere executed.
3: You know, one of the reasons why I guess they never wanted any of this to come out, because it's horrific. It is one of the most horrific genocides of the 20th century, in which food was used as a weapon. And the people who died, there was no mercy for them. They were dehumanized, they, there was a lot of propaganda against them, so that the people in the cities would not feel set sympathy for them. That sort of thing, which is a dehumanization process that happens in genocides, if the world knew about it and was willing to speak about it at that time, they would have been a pariah. There was also the major
0: effort that went on to prevent foreign journalists from writing it and generally from foreigners from knowing about it. Foreign journalists knew that if they mentioned the word famine, they were at risk of losing their visas and losing their right to stay in Russia, and so they avoided writing about it and some later reflected on this as having been, you know, a great embarrassment. One famous journalist, Walter Duranty, who was the New York Times correspondent at the time, wrote an article deliberately designed to deny reports of a famine. The headline of the article is, Russians are
3: hungry but not starving. Western governments knew about it too, but they didn't want to upset the Soviets. We can't get involved because it is their issue. Would that happen today? I mean, I think the world today is taking more of an interest in what is happening inside other countries where genocide is occurring. And I hope that we have grown a little stronger as a result of it. It's been denied, covered up and ignored for too long. You know, there are only 26 countries in the world that have recognized it as a genocide or an atrocity. Even all of those have not recognized it as a genocide. And some of the big ones haven't done it. Like formally, the United States hasn't done it. There's still this stuff that's there, this baggage, in the same way that Armenians are upset by the Turks, still to this day denying that they had done this as well the Germans have had to deal with their genocide they created with the Holocaust, haven't they? But not everyone does. This is wrong. You have to admit to something. This begs the question,
2: who gets to decide what is a genocide? Can you tell me more about the UN General Assembly Resolution in December of 1946 in defining genocide?
0: So the the word genocide was actually invented by a Polish-Jewish-Ukrainian lawyer called Raphael Lemkin, who came from what's now Western Ukraine. And he was very interested in this concept of states trying to eliminate or destroy other states, trying to eradicate them, not just physically, but also culturally. So he began thinking about these things before the Holocaust, before the Second World War. And then, of course, as the Second World War unfolded, he saw his concept sort of come to life. But after the war, there was a feeling among some that not enough had been done or there hadn't been a full recognition of what exactly had happened, particularly in Germany during the war, and the UN Convention on Genocide was a reaction to that. The complications of the convention were that it was written by, by the United Nations and the leaders of the United Nations at that time were the United States and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had a very clear interest in defining the the notion of genocide very narrowly. It should refer to an event like the Holocaust, the deliberate physical destruction of every member of an ethnic group. And legally and kind of intuitively, and people accepted this as the definition. The Ukrainian famine, for example, does not quite fit that definition because it was not an attempt to eradicate every single Ukrainian. The famine was stopped before it killed everybody, and um, there were Ukrainians who participated in it as perpetrators. So it's not, it's not an exact match for what happened to the Jews or the Second World War. Nevertheless, I think it was Lemkin's original intention was that the concept should be broader and that it should include you know, state crimes against particular populations, in which case it would have incorporated the Ukrainian famine. And I feel that this question of whether it is or isn't a genocide is a legal question of interest to people for political reasons, and sometimes it doesn't grip me as an issue the way it, a lot of people find it very, very central to this issue. But yes, I do think it should be recognized as a genocide, and, I, and I'm happy
2: for the Ukrainian government to go on pursuing that case. The United States conducted little research on the Holodomor until 1985. In 1985, the U.S. Commission on the Ukraine Famine was formed. It was a commission to, quote, conduct a study of the 1932 to 1933 Ukrainian famine in order to expand the world's knowledge of the famine and provide the American public with a better understanding of the Soviet system by revealing the Soviet role. The study concluded that Joseph Stalin and those around him committed genocide against Ukrainians. In 1932 to 1933, and the American press cooperated with the Soviet government to deny the existence of a genocide. To this day, Russia has yet to recognize this event as a genocide.
3: Nothing could be stated in a history book under the Soviet system for years. Right, Right up to independence, to 1991. This was a taboo subject. If you spoke about it, you could be arrested. If you told your children about it, you could be arrested. And you know what a six and seven year old are like. So parents would not tell their children about it. Grandparents would not tell their children about it. I ended up going to the Soviet Union twice during Soviet times before independence. And on the second time, I was there with my mother who talked to her sister and I was in their home and my mother brought up the Holodomor saying, do you remember? Well, she said, well, it never happened. And my mother jumped and she got very angry and she says, how can you say that? You know, we lived through it. And then my uncle pointed to the walls and his ears, that walls have ears we do not talk about this i mean it was kind of, for me i was in my 20s at the time it was this was, and i had been born in the west so i i sort of watched all this it was frightening you can see the fear in their eyes
2: There is so much the world still doesn't understand about the Holodomor, partially due
1: to a loss of historical memory. I come from Ukraine. Um, one part of my family, they, they survived by leaving the country, ended up on the far, in the forest.
2: This is Sergei Ploki.
1: He is a professor
2: of Ukrainian history and the director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard University.
1: Twenty years, another another part of the family survived by living the village and, uh, and going to the city, where there were more resources, because that, those were the sides of the industrialization. The, the, the discussion of that was not really happening in in, in the family setting, set. so there was no transition of that memory because talking about something like that to children means that children can actually go and start talking about that to their friends and on the street and so on and so forth which would put of course the adults in trouble but on the other hand the the scholars who go today and, and uh, study ukrainian society as a whole they say that despite the fact or maybe because that that the trauma was never verbalized it is, it is still there and it is very profound. The closest parallel would be maybe this 1950s famine in China. Do we hear a lot about that famine today? And again, the, the reason is the, the Chinese government, the, the Chinese Communist Party that is still there, of course, and the, the power that China exercises in the world. So that pretty much was uh, the, the situation uh, the situation before 1991. And that tradition, it's quite difficult to, to change, despite the fact that, again, things do change. And, again, your interest in that topic, I am very grateful for it, and grateful for the opportunity to have this interview and this discussion is a sign of this positive changes in the field.
0: And I think that kinds of campaigns are successful. And look, we know starvation in North Korea isn't something we're talking about very much right now. You know, when the President of the United States is, meeting the leader of North Korea, somehow the issue of people starving to death in North Korea or people being in concentration camps in North Korea has fallen off the agenda. And it's something like that. You know, look, we had a long relationship with the Soviet Union, and during the war, Stalin was our ally. After the war, there were always reasons why we need to talk about other things. We didn't need to, you know, we didn't have to talk about the famine. And so for political reasons, it wasn't interesting or important to people, and it fell off the
2: agenda. I had a hard time finding people to talk to about this event. Growing up in the United States, I, like many of you, learned about the Holocaust. It was part of history curriculum almost every year. But I had never heard of the word whole more until I started producing this episode. As the scholars in this episode said, the cover up was very successful. Denial can become truth if we let it. When history is lost, it is doomed to repeat itself. Thanks for listening. The Pursuit is produced by Landry Ayers, Natalie Dozicki, and me, Tess Terrible. Music by Cellophane Sam and Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to the Holidomore Research and Education Consortium. The Pursuit is a project of Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. To learn more, visit www.libertarianism.org.